This is the world of multi-employer benefit funds with Tracy Doherty Shanklin. We believe in demystifying retirement solutions, upholding retiree dignity, and contributing to economic stability through union organizing, pension reform, and legislative activism. In short, we're devoted to busting myths about the labor movement. If you're interested in the enduring power of labor, well, you've landed in the right place. Experts and activists will share their insights, expertise, and stories. Time is short, so let's get started. Today's conversation is with Steve McCourt, who is a managing principal and the co-chief executive officer of Makita Investment Group. He serves as the lead consultant for several institutional funds with public Taft-Hartley endowment and nonprofit plan sponsors. His consulting work includes investment policy design, strategic and tactical asset allocation modeling, asset liability modeling, investment education, and investment manager analysis. Steve and I spoke back in May 2020. It was the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, and we touched on how the pandemic and other economic crises have impacted defined benefit funds. However, when we first had that conversation, it was only the beginning of the lockdown in 2020, so there wasn't very much data available. Steve was generous enough to offer a follow-up conversation for our listeners once some data became available. So welcome, Steve. Yeah, thanks. Well, what an interesting period. In our previous conversation, you mentioned that many of the funds were in good condition back in the 90s when the first recession of 2000 hit them. Then the recovery between 2003 and 2007 wasn't particularly strong. So when these funds were hit again by the Great Recession of 2008, it was pretty catastrophic for many of these plans. Then we entered into the global pandemic with an unprecedented shutdown in our economy. And to everyone's surprise, the markets have been seemingly undaunted by the pandemic. How have defined benefit plans fared during and after the coronavirus? I'm sure when we talked, I highlighted that the pandemic started at an interesting point in the capital market cycle because we were roughly 10 years, a little more than 10 years into a bull market, which for any bull market is um, very much on the long side. What One would have thought that the pandemic and the economic contraction that it created would have triggered a bear market. Uh, if for no other reason, then it happened at the tail end of a bull market. Shows how much we all know. It turns out that the pandemic triggered another bull market and maybe one of the strongest bull markets in history uh, with the market doubling from the bottom or more in a two-year time period. And that, of course, it was a function of fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus that continues to this day, and the sort of strange situation we found ourselves in and continue to where throughout the recession, the stimulus was sufficient enough where the average consumer and the average company was on sure financial footing during the recession than they were before the recession. And, and that's just a very unusual spot to be in. And it uh, has caused prices of all types of assets in which defined benefit plans invest skyrocket. I'm curious, what is your take on the future of the markets? I mean, are you guys continuing to, to think that this is going to be a bull market run or are you worried about inflation or what are some of the concerns that you guys are entertaining at this point? Yeah, I think there's several sort of layers of concern that people should have about the markets. The most important one 
and the concern that one would have most confidence in is just that the valuations of assets, whether they be bonds, stocks, real estate, private equity, whatever asset class you're referring to, are significantly higher now than they were even just three or four years ago, let alone 10, 20 years ago. That may mean we're due for a big bear market, but what it certainly means is that forward-looking returns looking out 10 or 20 years are going to be a lot lower. In that sort of framework and context, the strong returns that we've experienced in the last two years have, in essence, pulled forward returns that investors would have expected well into the future, into the present. So it feels really good now, but uh, plans have to plan for lower expected returns into the distant future. And of course, that's what's driving uh, a lot of plans today to be looking at reducing their assumed rates of return to ensure that they are realistic given where pricing of assets are today. The other layers of concern are I would say, number one, the combined risk of inflation and policy mistakes by the Federal Reserve to increase interest rates to stem inflation. This high valuation era that we're in right now in assets, uh, at its core, is all being driven by yields on long-term treasury bonds being historically low. And they're historically low in part because the Federal Reserve has been buying billions and billions and billions of treasury bonds and, and is now starting to taper that that purchasing. If inflation is a concern, if the Federal Reserve decides not to manage the long end of the treasury curve and interest rates are allowed to increase more meaningfully, that is a risk that doesn't just affect bonds, it affects every asset class that derives its value from discounted future cash flows like equities and, and real estate and private equity. So that's that's certainly a meaningful risk that the capital markets are are focusing on today. On, on the flip side, with all the valuation concerns that one should have and, and the, the risk of rising rates and inflation, we continue to be in an economy that, broadly speaking, is opening and healing. The pandemic was as large a dislocation of any economic activity in the US since the Great Depression. It's going to take several years to get the labor market back to where it was. We're a good way through that process now, but we're still in that process. We still have new employment in the country increasing at very high levels each and every month, which adds, uh, in essence, more demand and stimulus to the economy. The the risks are to what happens when those tailwinds pull back. and, And we all know eventually they do. Before the pandemic, there were 130 funds projected to insolvency with an additional 200 or so plans in jeopardy due to the crisis. It sounds like that number has not increased and in fact could have gone down. But I'm curious if you know if that number is higher or lower than projected. I would have to imagine, uh, Tracy, that that number has gone down, but I've not I've not seen specifically. And, and obviously, a lot of those plans that are critically and endangered are lined up for funding from Treasury to to support benefits through 2051, uh, supposedly. So I think a combination of asset returns being higher than normal the last two years and the the government support for uh, severely underfunded pension plans has to improve that situation. That's good news, I hope. <laughs> That's correct. For the healthy plans, I guess, how have they fared? Do you have a sense of which type of industries and funds were hit the least or the hardest? The impact was incredibly varied. You you had some trades 
where the impact was quite minimal, even at the, the, tr- the trough of the recession, work was quite strong. You have others that those trades might be changed forever. I mean, you, you think about the you know, hotel and restaurant workers and challenges they've had the last two years. That's a seismic event for them. And it's clear that that part of the economy is not healing as fast as other parts of the economy um, either. So there's, there's clearly stress in certain areas of the labor markets um, right now. There's been sort of a host of winners and host of losers uh, with respect to the hours uh, going into defined benefit plans. Uh, but I'd say generally speaking, across the organized labor movement, uh, jobs have tracked kind of, at least based on our observation across our clients, the experience of the broader economy, which is you know the first couple of months of the pandemic, nobody knew what was going to happen to employment, to business, but then things have speedily kind of returned back to a level of, of reasonable normalcy. Yeah, the resilience has been quite amazing to see. So how have you found that the trustees have responded to the pandemic and the lockdowns? I mean, are the, is there still a an adoption of the more virtual meetings? And do you think that that carries beyond this pandemic? We've had a few clients that have been meeting in person throughout the pandemic. We've had many more that uh, have moved virtual continue to be virtual and probably feel like they can get most of their business done fairly effectively virtually, whether they be Taft-Hartley funds or public pension plans or endowments and foundations. I think the people have realized much of the work that they need to get done, they can, they can do virtually. And I, th- I think that's good. I think people have also discovered that there are certain decisions and work that needs to get done at committee levels that is much harder to do remotely. And I think people will be anxious to get back in person to to do some of that. At the end of the day, our industry is a relationship industry and people who want to build and grow relationships with trust funds are going to find value in finding ways to get together in person. Yeah, I agree. Have there been any changes in investment approaches due to COVID? On the policy front, the biggest change that we're seeing is driven by not just extraordinarily low interest rates, but the the general consensus that interest rates will be very low for a very long time. And as I mentioned, that drives forward-looking return expectations for every asset class much lower. Many of our clients in the last 12 months has done an asset allocation review based on new forward-looking expectations and has made decisions to change asset allocation or not with their eyes wide open based on what forward-looking returns are likely to be. Those dynamics often lead to changes in how groups allocate their their capital. While every trust fund is individualistic and and does their own thing, there's, there's some themes that are clearly sort of working themselves out One is clearly given the need for growth assets, uh, equities in portfolios, there's been a significant migration towards more private equity, more private market assets that have the potential to produce higher rates of return than public equities, maybe without the day-to-day volatility that public equities have. There's been a movement within fixed income towards private credit strategies that likewise can produce higher levels of income, higher yields. 
and maybe don't have the the price volatility that uh, high yield bonds or or bank loans uh, have in portfolios. And then I think on the flip side, a lot of our clients is one of the really neat thing about being an advisor today in comparison to the late 90s. Most trustees that we work with understand before we even come to the table that stock prices are crazy and asset prices generally are just like at the high end of any sort of reasonable level. Most everybody is aware of risk. So risk control becomes a much more meaningful topic in investment discussions. In addition to looking at raising allocations to private market assets, uh, many of our clients at the same time are looking at risk mitigating strategies, long-term treasury bonds, hedge fund strategies designed to go up when markets go down to offset uh, some of that volatility of higher equity allocations. Those are the major themes on uh, kind of investment policy changes that that I, I suspect will continue into the next year or two. On the practical standpoint, you know, I think the virtual environment has had and, and will continue to have sort of a change in how boards govern their investment processes. The historical model of consultants like Nikita bringing managers to a finalist presentation and trustees to interview them was sort of fading away before the pandemic. But in a virtual world, it's almost gone away entirely because I think most trustees don't find as much value in meeting with new managers um, remotely. You certainly see a movement towards boards leaning on consultants more for specific recommendations on managers or migrating towards a, a more of an outsourced model where the consultant has discretion to, to hire or fire asset managers. I think that will continue as the, the kind of virtual world evolves. I think gone are the days where we would meet with 300 managers in our office every year and fly all around the world meeting on site. We, I think both managers and consultants have found that they can do better, more rigorous diligence meeting virtually, meeting more people at the organizations virtually than they can with quick meetings, at in-person meetings at people's offices. And so the process of evaluating managers, evaluating strategies, in some ways, it's gotten a lot more robust now, a lot more systematic, a lot more thoughtful in some ways as it's moved away from kind of a face-to-face dialogue and more to a virtual realm. Have they had to change anything in, in terms of the way in which they previously said you had to review a manager? I mean, what wasn't in-person part of the protocol? This is, some of the reaction is that boards have just... Um, chosen not to replace as many managers during the pandemic because there's always light at the end of the tunnel and we're going to be done with this at some point. <laughs> so let's just wait till then. But obviously two years on, we're kind of reaching the point where where boards are saying, well, if there's a manager we got to replace, we got to replace them. With some clients that have said, Makita, can you just be take on discretion to, to hire or terminate the managers? We've had some that say, well, Nikita, can you just come to us with a recommendation? Give us the analysis. Give us your all your documentation that you go through for your search process. Give us two or three options. But we don't need to meet with the managers. We'll rely on your, your diligence and your advice um, within that. And this is a, a bit of a diversion from my original thoughts in, in terms of our conversation. But I know I do have a lot of listeners that are on the money management side. And I'm curious if you guys have changed anything in your research and how a manager would approach Makita from a research standpoint. 
Um, is there any different processes that exist? Are there any other vehicles to getting the attention of the research team? I think the challenge, putting myself in the, the shoes of an asset manager marketing to a, to a consulting firm, the challenge in a remote world is you no longer have that really critical tool of meeting in person with a research staff at their offices. Without that, I think much like every other business, it's hard to build a relationship. And without a relationship, it's hard to build confidence and trust. And without confidence and trust, it's hard to get endorsement. So that whole kind of chain of events uh, gets delayed because of the lack of ability to meet with with people in person. Pre-pandemic, diligence from a consulting firm might look a lot like you know reviewing an RFP, meeting with a with a marketing person and a portfolio manager at your office for a couple of hours, doing an on-site meeting to the manager where you meet with a portfolio manager and an analyst. You go back to your office, you write up your notes, you consider your thoughts, and you rate the manager and tell the consultants what you think of them. I think post-pandemic now, that's become a lot more detailed because virtually, you don't need to schedule around people's schedules. You can now have conversations with a dozen different people within asset management firms. You can talk to the chief operating officer, the chief financial officer, the head of research, the you know whoever you want to talk to to kind of get a rounded view of, of that asset manager. And I, I would imagine that firms that are more transparent and open to that um, are going to be more, more successful in that new world. So I think even once you're kind of engaged in the research process at a, at a consulting firm, that process itself changes a little bit. It's less about pitch books and slides and maybe more about the people that you're engaging with during the diligence process along the way. Interesting. You have been listening to the world of multi-employer benefit funds. And since I'm running a little low on time, I'm going to pause my conversation with Steve McCourt, a managing principal and co-CEO of Makita Investment Group. On the next episode, we will finish our conversation about the effects of coronavirus pandemic on defined benefit funds. Steve will also weigh in on the American Rescue Plan Act and how it impacts some of the funds going forward. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please consider supporting us with a voluntary contribution at www.patreon.com forward slash multi-employer funds. That's www.patreon.com forward slash multi-employer funds. Or you can subscribe to us and leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many other podcast platforms. And of course, you can always find us on our website at www.multiemployerfunds.com. That's www.multiemployerfunds.com. Here you can find our entire podcast library and join our newsletter. Thanks again for joining the conversation where listeners connect with leading experts throughout the multi-employer world. Be part of the change. And that's it for this week's episode of the World of Multi-Employer Benefit Funds. We'd love to have your support. You can show your support by sharing episodes, making comments, or heading over to www.patreon.com slash multi-employer funds for other partnership opportunities. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to the next time. 
CSU Partners LLC hosts the World of Multi-Employer Benefit Funds podcast, which contains content and discussions that have been prepared for informational and educational purposes only. No listener should assume that any discussion on this podcast serves as the receipt of or substitute for personalized advice from an investment professional, as the information provided on the podcast is not intended to be investment, legal, or tax advice. The company is not an SEC-registered investment advisor and does not solicit clients or raise capital for money managers. CSU Partners offers securities through XD Capital Partners, LLC.